Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest is Felix Brooks Church, CEO of Sanku, which helps local mills across Africa produce fortified food, primarily flour today, via Sanku's machines and technology. Felix was introduced to me by David Dodson, co-founder and chairman of the board at Sanku. Sanku has a fascinating origin story, which includes a stint in Nepal, refining the technology, and is now a quickly growing enterprise that has required a ton of learning on Felix's part to adapt his role to the growing company. Felix and I talk about how he's adapted his role, leaning on the board for feedback and advice, sustaining growth pace, and building discipline. Please enjoy my episode with Felix Brooks Church. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company, as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it will need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at oberly-risk.com or visit their website at oberly-risk.com. And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies. Here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Can I just roll the insurance from the company I just acquired into my ownership of that business? That's a great question. So one of the questions we get from our clients a lot is, you know, hey, can't we just take the existing insurance that's there and just keep it through the ownership transition? And the answer really is, is not typically. First off, insurance is not assignable. So they, the insurance carriers that insure the current business want to make sure they know the owners of that current business, what that current business does. So they, they don't allow for the insurance program to automatically be assigned to another entity. And that would be the case if it was an asset deal. So in an asset deal, 9.9 times out of 10, the insurance carriers will require a brand new insurance program to be created. And so that, that's something to really think about and know and get started on ahead of time. In a stock deal where the, um, sort of the I would say the FEIN, FEIN stays the same throughout the ownership transition, a lot of the insurance carriers still have protection because they want to make sure they know who that new owner is and are uncomfortable about just um, continuing to insure someone through, through an ownership transition. So they have like these change in control clauses where if there is a change in ownership, they have the right to cancel the policies. So those are two big things to look out for as you're, as you're buying a business is to get started early because more times than not, the insurance is going to need to be rewritten. Great. Thank you, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong and Ravix Group for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Felix, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've enjoyed chatting with you so far, and I'm looking forward to a full episode now. We were talking earlier about 
kind of the, the decades of your life and each one having a distinct theme to it with 40s being, you know, having a family incorporated into that decade. Do you want to walk through kind of the, the themes you've observed through maybe 20s, 30s, 40s and how each one has been kind of unique and had its own challenges and what has each one felt like for you? Great. Thank you so much, Alex. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And I have been thinking about that recently, probably more so in the last couple of days. Actually, today is my birthday, so I'm hitting 46. And so every time I've had a, a birthday recently, I've obviously reflected on on kind of life before. And so, you know, breaking up your life in the decades, I've definitely had, you know, very clear themes, you know, very conveniently falling into decades. And, you know, obviously, you know, zero to 10, you know, I was a child and teenage years, you're, you're just trying to figure yourself out. And, and really my twenties was, was an extension of, of trying to find who I was and did a lot of traveling, didn't really focus on, you know, a career at that point. I lived a very free life, no responsibility. And then in my thirties is when I really opportunities came my way where I was able to focus on kind of latching onto something that would define me up to this point and really for the rest of my life. And, and that was work and, and the career I do. And, and really that came through invitations and I kind of fell into the job. And, but it was the first time that I had something so passionate that wasn't, I was, it wasn't about me, right? It was about something else. And up to that point of my life, I, I guess, by living so free and independent, I, I, I live somewhat of a selfish life. And my work now is very socially driven. It's about everybody else and, and it's a career. And so 30s was really defined by just really getting myself completely deep into the work we do today. And I was single at that time. In my 40s, now I'm married, I have two children. It's, it's something that is more important than work, obviously. But the challenge is, you know, balancing these two incredibly important and demanding and time consuming things and being good at both and making sure I'm not sacrificing one for the other. And that's, that's really what's defined my forties. And I'm, I'm still considering myself mid forties. I'm 46. And so I don't know what fifties and sixties and seventies will look like, but definitely this is, the, <laughs> this is the, the, the most demanding decade I've ever lived. This is the most, the most kind of things I've had to balance and I love it. It's, it's, it's stressful at times, obviously, but I get a lot back. I'll put it that way. I get a lot back from my job. I get a lot back, obviously, from my children, my beautiful wife. So I think I'm in a good place. When you say that the, your 30s were a more selfish decade, what do you mean by that? Can you expand on that a little bit more? I think definitely my 20s was a more selfish decade. I think I just looked for you know, I was trying to find myself, I know that's a cliche, but definitely trying to define what I wanted in life. And so it was all about me. What do I want? What will make me happy? What, who do I want to be? Where do I want to go? Where, where do I want to be? And so a lot of, a lot of questions were me, right? What, what does this do for me? In my thirties, I found something that I felt kind of checked all those boxes. And ironically, it was something that wasn't about me. It was really about giving back. And that was in a sense a relief. It was like, finally, I have to think about myself. <laughs> I'm kind of boring. I want to think about other things. I want to think about creativity, building things, physical things, companies, you know, elevating other people, whether it's people I work with or beneficiaries and, and customers we work with. And so there was definitely a transition from the 20s to the 30s of, of, of looking out, from looking in to looking out. And I think it was all necessary. I mean, that path was definitely necessary. Everything happens for a reason and it got me here. But it was interesting that it was really a switch, a, a pretty sharp switch from the 20s to the 30s as far as what was important in my life. 
And now again, from 30s to 40s, uh, it went from 30s entirely job, you know, 120% importance was my job to now being not obviously nearly as important as my family and my children, but still equally as important because my work is responsible for a hundred families that work for us and, and for, you know, close to 7 million people who were affecting. So it's, it's all important. And for me, it's about discipline and really making sure that I can do it all and do it all well. Yeah. I love that concept of your life going from inward focus to outward focus. It feels like that's happened both in your personal life, but also professional life too. And that you know, the mission of your company, I'd love to hear even more about that. That in to out is an interesting transition to think about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There was a learning curve throughout it all. I think you have to learn who you are and figure that out before you can kind of attach yourself to something. You know, there's there's such a big learning curve in the work that we do. I didn't want to figure myself out in parallel to that. I'm still learning. I'm still growing 100%, 100%. But I'm really glad that I experienced those 20s and partially into the 30s where I was able to experiment, find myself and, and kind of build a foundation where I had that confidence of of who I was to a certain degree, I'm still figuring that out, but who I was to be able to then give myself completely to the work that we did and not feel like I was sacrificing or giving up or not experiencing things. Because I experienced a lot and then I was ready for the second chapter of my life. And I guess now I'm technically in my third chapter now with the family and, and all those things that come around that. What do you feel like most prepared you for running Sanku today? Like when, when you think of your past experiences and things you've learned or habits you've created, what do you feel like has most prepared you best for this role today? Well, on paper, when I started this work and I, I, I started with my co-founder, David Dodson, who was a guest on, on your, your podcast, on paper, I didn't have the traditional qualifications for this job. Absolutely. To be honest with you. And I think my, my skills or my, my, my strengths were more around creativity. Um, I've always been a creative person, whether it's art, music, design, those skills to be able to create something from nothing or to problem solve is what I really learned, leaned on rather. I really leaned on these things early on and still do. And so that was a huge, huge, I guess, superpower of mine was just creativity. The second thing was just fearlessness to go out there into the field, to travel by myself with a backpack throughout Africa. Having grown up internationally and traveled so much as a child, it was very natural and very normal. But I also have this very adventurous streak that I want to, I don't want to sit in the office. I want to be out in the field. I want to be, you know, literally climbing mountains to, to push this mission forward. And so the combination of just being addicted to creativity, to creating things, to innovating and really wanting that adventure to be out there. Cause our mission isn't, our mission isn't being solved in the office. It's being solved out in the field. It's, it's facing in the front lines of the problem that we're trying to combat. So those, those are two foundational strengths of mine that I'm, I'm very proud of. And then all the other traditional professional things I kind of learned all the way along the way, rather I was, I was taught along the way by all the great mentors and, and leaders that I've been able to work with. So yeah, I'm, I'm very glad for that. What experiences in Africa and some of the travels you've had most influenced Sanku and its mission? Like where, where did this come from for you? personally? 
For me personally, well, there was two origin stories. There's, there's David, my co-founder's origin story. Him and his previous wife are the original founders of an organization that Senku spun out of. Sorry. But for my personal experience, you know, it started before Senku. Senku is the name of the organization that we co-founded. It started all the way in childhood growing up in North Africa and South America and, and really in these communities and around these communities that we're helping now. And so I've always wanted to go back and give back to, to what I experienced as a child. I, I knew that eventually would be my path. But the direct link to what I'm doing now really started about 16 years ago when I got an invitation to join a friend of my mother in Cambodia. He was working with a group of about 100 street children that, that lived part-time or full-time on the street or on the beaches, collecting cans, uh, collecting rubbish or begging or or selling trinkets. And so his his idea was to get these children off of the beach and off of the streets into his center where they could use art as therapy. Unfortunately, a lot of these children, by living and being exposed in those environments, were were um, subject to abuse on, on many levels. So it was art for art therapy and to develop them through that. And, and then they could go back into school or back into their society, to their families. That's when I fell in love with this work because I saw immediate impact. You know, I was sitting there many times with a child painting and just to see them blossom from painting, you know, smudging black and mixing colors on a, on a, on a palette to painting colors in a matter of weeks and months. And, and for me, for, for me, I saw that there was, there was change and change was possible and it was beautiful, especially when you see it in a child. And through this experience, I learned, okay, I, I can do this. I want to do this. This is what I want to do forever. <laughs> and then also that there were bigger problems to solve as well. And that's where I was introduced to, to malnutrition, basically children not getting enough vitamins and minerals in their diets and what effect that has on them, not only physically, but mentally. mentally. And so for me, that got me interested, that got me committed to a path to better health for children and everybody really. And eventually, you know, serendipitously aligned in, uh, with David Dotson, my co-founder, and eventually into this seat that, I get to run this amazing company. And how did you come to flour and like enriched flour and fortified flour as like the solution? Why, where did that idea and that decision come from? Well, fortifying flour and, and staple foods has been around for decades. It's, it's one of the oldest nutrition interventions. So staple foods are basically the foods that those basic foods that we need to cook, the basic ingredients like flour, sugar, salt, oil, all these things, every culture, every country has as their staple foods. And so as a vehicle, if you're gonna pick a food to, to ensure that you can get better nutrition into somebody, you pick these foods because chances are everyone's eating them, they're eating them every day, they're eating large amounts. And, and so going back to kind of the early days of this work that we do, originally the organization was called Project Healthy Children. And again, that was founded by David Dodson and his then wife, Stephanie Dodson, Stephanie Cornell now. And they were looking at working with governments in developing countries or in the global South to pass laws, mandates, to, to basically tell large industries who create and produce these staple foods that now you have to add these, these nutrients. And these nutrients are basically you know, the multivitamin that you eat every morning. If you were to crush that, crush that up into powder and put, it in, put that in your food, it's, it's, a, it's essentially the same concept. And in fact, in the US and global north, 
all industries fortifying their food by law. So General Mills is, is fortifying all flour and, and, and so on. So it's a, again, it's a great vehicle. So bringing that proven technology, that proven science to the global south was the idea of, of David Dotson and, and Stephanie Dotson. And how we, and, and again, they were working with governments to, to fortify all staple foods. So again, sugar, salt, wheat flour, maize flour, and uh, edible oil. We then realized that no matter how well large industry does to fortify these staple foods, there are small millers and there are small food producers in the communities where arguably the most malnutrition or most at-risk people live that aren't using these technologies, that aren't benefiting from these fortification laws that the government has passed. And the biggest staple food consumed in East Africa is maize flour. And that's because maize or corn is grown everywhere. It's a cash crop and, and it's easy to cook and it fills up your stomach, but it's void of any nutrition. But again, it's a vehicle that everybody eats. And so it's a vehicle that you can use to get nutrition into people. So flour was the choice because everybody eats it. All the mills that produce it, you can find every village has one, every town has a dozen, every city has hundreds, but collectively all these small mills producing this flour feed the entire nation. So for us, it was really our, our, our first aha moment. There we go. Let's fortify that flour. If we do, we're literally going to reach a hundred million people. And we've been on that path ever since. So what's the business of Sanku then? So it sounds like there's mills you work with that help produce the flour, but are you at Sanku selling the the nutritional fortification or the flour itself? How how do how do you work with the different mills that that are in all these different regions? We're, first of all, we're a social enterprise. We're a nonprofit social enterprise. So we're not a business doing business for money. We're a business doing business for social good. And so we identified, as I mentioned before, the vehicle maize flour. Okay, that was the first box to check. And then we had to dig down, okay, where is that flour being produced? Okay, it's being produced everywhere, every village, every town, every city, as I mentioned. And these are small mills. And and for your listeners who can't see it, it, it you know, it's it's about the size of a small bedroom, sometimes as small as a bathroom, tiny operations, one little mill, which is called a hammer mill, which is the actual machine that grinds up the grain into flour, sits in the middle of these small rooms. And typically one, maybe two people operate this. It could be a husband and wife. It could be a young entrepreneur. It could be a 16 year old kid, you know, doing it on the side. But again, there's tens of thousands of these small mills. And so if we're going to reach hundreds of millions of people, you have to fortify. Fortifying means making flour stronger, literally with nutrients. You have to fortify this flour at that level. And so our business model was, okay, check the box. What's being consumed is flour. Where is it being consumed? These small mills. Then we said, okay, let's, let's go buy a machine that automates the addition of these nutrients in powdered form, safe nutrients like iron, folic acid, B12, zinc, all these really important nutrients, vitamins and minerals into that flour. But there wasn't any machine or technology available off the shelf. And so, of course, we were thinking, well, let's go invent one. And really, this goes back before I, I joined. And so David David Dotson went to his alma mater, where he was still a professor at the Stanford Business School, and he approached a class called Design for Extreme Affordability. So essentially, this is a class that combines uh, business and engineers and 
gets them focused on a problem in the global south using technology and business models to create a solution to better humanity, you know, on all levels. And so they were tasked with this challenge to build a machine that would, again, automate precise amounts, safe amounts of powdered condensed forms of vitamins and minerals, a broken up, crushed multivitamin into this flower. So they built a prototype, a proof of concept, enough for David to say, you know, this has some legs. I want to commit some funding towards this and see if this could get to a higher level. And that's when I was recruited and brought on board to start to own that process of product design, not only of the technology, but thinking about business models, how could this be scaled? And so at that point, I moved to Kathmandu, Nepal. David bought me a one-way ticket. I had my backpack, had some sketches from the students from Stanford University and some support from them ongoing, and lived there for two years just breaking things and trying to build this machine. I'm not an engineer. (laughs) I'll say that here, but I do have some experience with product design, and I had a team around me to help this process. A local team of, of Nepalis, I had a firmware software engineer in Korea. I had one of the Stanford students that we brought on board as a contractor from the US. Anyways, all of us together were able to get this prototype, this machine up to a certain level that finally worked. And, and from that, we moved to East Africa where we got an invitation from the government of Tanzania through uh, USAID to work with these small mills. And so we started one by one, slowly installing these machines, making sure they work accurately on each of these mills. And we got to a certain level that we we're reaching, I think, a couple hundred thousand people with Fortified Flower. And our business model is, is, is quite simple. We give them the machine they use for free, as long as they're using it correctly. So there's no upfront cost for them. And so then we, at that time, we were selling them these nutrients as the recurring input that they needed to run their business. And these nutrients aren't expensive, but these mills are so small. They're such small businesses. Their, their margins are razor thin. So we realized that, you know, it wasn't sustainable to try to force them to pay for it. And they couldn't pass that cost on to the consumer, literally the mothers who bought this product. And so we, bas- we basically fig- figured out efficient ways for them to run their businesses where they could save money and those savings could put towards offsetting those nutrients. And I can get more into that. In, in detail, but essentially we've neutralized the cost of fortification for these millers. It's an incentivizer for them. They do the job now. The end result is fortified flour is in the market again for close to 7 million people now across East Africa. That's a fantastic story. I love the going to Nepal first and, and learning there for a little while. What do you feel like from that experience? What do you take away most from your time in Nepal? Nepal was almost entirely around and dedicated around the technology. So product development, it was all about all those great R&D things you have to go through, fail early, fail often, fail forward. It was two years of failing. (laughs) And what it taught me was obviously never give up. I mean, there was many, many points that I got on the call on on a phone call with David and said, you know, I'm not sure this is working. Or he said, he's, you know, I'm not sure it's working. And in each case, we talk each other out of it. Right? We'd say, no, we, we've got this, we've got this. So I, I think what I learned was you can't do anything by yourself because you're going to talk yourself out of it. You got to find great support mechanisms and great, great leadership. And you just got to keep on pers- pressing on the gas because if you really believe in the outcome, you'll get there. And we believe so much that this is doable. 
not only believed, we felt a responsibility that this has to happen. When you think about the statistics of malnutrition, close to 8,000 children dying every single day. And, and there's moments when I just think about that stat and boom, I pick up an extra speed and I kick into an extra gear. And so that was very important during those two years because things didn't work for two years until they did. And things never work until they do. And it took us two years to struggle long until we get a machine that we thought was finally ready to do the job of fortification. A lot of times we're testing just in the lab, so to speak, which was a dirt floor metal shop in Kathmandu, far from a, from, from a clean lab or anything precise. But after two years, we finally get this machine to a point where, okay, this, this is ready to go into a proper mill and start fortifying flour and fortifying flour for people to consume. And I remember it was a couple months ago to the day, the anniversary. So this must have put us into April, April 2012. This is going back some time. So April 2012 in Kathmandu, it, it was it was wet. It was a bit cold. And we were testing outside of Kathmandu, in, essentially in the foothills of the Himalaya. So this is driving you know, through rocky roads and winding paths up, 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 up into the hills. And these are where the, the, these small mills were located. They're always on the top of the hill and, and the hill is covered with maize and that's how they grew it. And that's how they farmed and that's where they milled. And that's where the village was. And so we climb, literally climb up the hill and install this machine in this tiny, tiny little mill. We turn it on, turn on the machine. The miller turns on his mill. Our machine attaches on top of the mill. The miller pours in grain into our machine. The way it works, it, it weighs it and the grain goes into the miller's machine. We know exactly how much nutrients should be dosed. It automatically does it, so there's no human error. At that point, it didn't blow up, it didn't overheat. The little feed screw that pumps out the nutrients turned around perfectly. The amount we, we checked was rightly dosed and the right amount of nutrients and iron and things like that were in the flour. And it worked, it worked for the first time. And, and you know, tears were in, in our eyes. There was a lot of hugging, there was a lot of high fives. There are a lot of kind of, wow, we did it. <laughs> I can't believe it. And, and we ate that food and we sat with other people from that village and we ate that food. And then it was emotional. And, and, you know, we always honor that moment and we honor that moment in everything we do. In fact, the name of our organization, Sanku, is named after that village. That village was called Sanku. Look it up. It's a tiny little village in the middle of Nepal. And that's where this journey started. That's where this journey has continued from. And so. There's been so many of those moments throughout my career working with David and, and Sanku, this organization that one day we'll write a book because it's been an amazing journey. And it's just, it's just started to be written because we've got a lot more work to be done, but it's been an amazing ride thus far. Just out of curiosity, did you ever fly into Lukla up in the mountains? I didn't. I didn't. I was there for two years. I, I went to a few places, but I never did that. And I never did. Everest base camp. And I never did these things. People are like, what are you doing? You live in Nepal. And I was like, well, I wasn't, yeah, I was living in Nepal, but I was living in this machine. I was living in R and D. I was living in metal shops with dirt floors. I was living in mills. You know, I wasn't on vacation. I wasn't a tourist. And, I, you know, I don't regret that because yeah, hiking up to Everest base camp would have been an amazing, you know, hike up that hill. But I, I hiked up the hill to Sanku, that village, and I'll take that any day. I ask because there's a the airport at Lukla is one of the most like dangerous looking airports ever. The runway is it goes down the hill or down down the mountain. So when you land, your your plane is actually flying upwards towards the runway. 
And then when you take off, you're rolling down the hill and accelerating and then taking off. It's It looks really cool in uh, videos. I'll, I'll, I'll send you one afterwards, but just curious. That, that looks like a really, as an aviation geek myself, like that would be a really fun experience to have. I know, I, I, I know it well, and, and I love aviation. Ironically, I'm actually scared to fly, but I love aviation. And that's partly the reason why I never visited Look now, but I've seen it and I've seen videos and it looks scary. It looks really, really scary. And you're su it's such high altitude and there are, there's been a lot of crashes. And so maybe I made the excuse that I didn't have time to visit that airport, but also I never wanted to. <laughs> it looked extremely scary. <laughs> you're an aviation geek, but you're afraid of flying. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> I just love the concept of flight. The fact that we've been able to engineer massive metal birds and they fly. I, un I understand all the physics. I still, every time I step into a, to a plane, I fly a lot. I commute between Australia, where I am right now, to East Africa, and I do it every month or two. So I fly a lot. The bigger the plane, the safer I feel. But I'm just fascinated with what we've created, a, a metal bird. And I, again, I understand lift and drag and all the physics, but it still amazes me every time I look at an airplane in the sky. Yeah, it's it's impressive how massive, heavy they are. Like, if, if, A lot of the small Cessnas, they're pretty light. You can kind of move them around, but they quickly get very heavy. And it's it's hard to imagine anything that heavy. Like, like my pencil can't fly, but somehow this giant plane can. Like that just doesn't, it doesn't compute for a little while. But yeah, I also get the physics, but somehow, somehow it works out. So obviously your role as CEO has evolved dramatically from working on the machine itself to now running a larger organization. What do you, we talked earlier about kind of your life in terms of decades and themes with each one. Do you feel like there's a, a similar like section of themes within your role as CEO over time that you've, you've noticed and identified? For sure. There's been a phases of Sanku and, you know, the first phase was product development, you know, make a machine, make a machine that works, make a machine that's commercialized and scalable and all those things. And so it was very hands-on product development. At that point, David Dotson, it was me and him for Sanku at least. And he was, he was the CEO at that point. And so I was very much focused all my time on does this machine work? And then the next step was, okay, it's great to have a machine. It's great to have a product, but how do you get customers to use it? What's the business model? How is this going to make money? How is this going to be sustained in our case as a, as a, as a social enterprise? What kind of team do we, we need? What's that kind of foundational team do we need to start testing some of these business models? And so that was the second phase was to think from, from a product to now a business around that product. And I think the third phase that we've, we're, we've been in for the last couple of years is, is building that team that can run systems. It's great to have systems, but if you don't have the right team to run them, you don't have anything. And so we had, you know, probably the hard way learned how important systems are, learned the hard way how important great staff are. It's, it's hard to find great staff and it's hard to really have them drive these great systems. And I think that we're still in that phase. We're still in that phase of really polishing off and maturing as a company. We have a hundred, I think 103 staff now, and we are miles ahead of where we were five years ago not only in quality of staff and leadership, it's important to mention we have 103 staff and a hundred of them are East African, you know, executive level all the way down. 
And so have, finding these great local leaders, hiring from the communities that we're trying to help and, and developing all these systems that they can run and the company that we can run collectively. It's been an amazing part of, of my personal journey. And, and again, I'm all ears to David, to our board, to all mentors that I have because I'm still in that learning process. I think you never stop learning, obviously. I think the best CEOs always ask questions. The best CEOs are always on calls saying, what do you think about this idea? I think it's dangerous to say, I got this, you know, leave me alone. And so I'm still in that process. And, and luckily I have those outlets, you know, within my team as well. I learned from the, the people reporting to me as much as maybe I'm learning, they're learning from me. So it's a, it's a collaborative process, really it is. Yeah, you've talked about that being a, like over time, you feel like you've learned more and more, been like more and more open to learning new things and that the, what you know is that there's still like so much more for you to learn over time. When do you feel like that started to to switch for you where suddenly you realize how much you don't know and need to keep up with? Yeah, I think everyone, the younger you are, probably the more arrogant you are. <laughs> you think you know it all because you don't really know anything. You haven't experienced life. So the more that I started to work and, and become a professional and work with professionals and, and, and be exposed to the board, which is an amazing level of professionalism, and start to figure out and work in, in this sector with, with other business partners and implementing partners, just being around all these amazing experiences, smart people, more and more I realized, wow, I've got a, a lot to learn and I need to be humble. And I think my willingness to, to, to accept the fact that I have a long path of growth expedited my growth, if that makes sense. You know, I didn't, I, did, I removed barriers more and more and I still do that today. And it's been a humbling experience, a necessary experience. And coupled that with, you know, then having a family, talk about not being prepared for a job, you know, having kids, there's no blueprint. There's, there's, you know, there's, you, you can't be, you're never overly prepared for that. You know, it, you, you kind of learn on the job and, and very much, you know, like that, this job I've learned on the job and, and I've only learned because I've had great leaders around me, great experienced mentors, and my willingness to say, you know what, I, I am struggling. I haven't figured this out. I need help. And then getting to a point of knowledge through that process has been a really enjoyable process. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to learn this and I need to speak to people who have that experience so that I can figure that out. And I think that's ongoing throughout my career and that's never going to stop. You said that your your executive team is so much more built out today than you know five years ago. Are there a couple key roles or key things that you do as an executive team that have created a lot of leverage for you as a CEO? Yeah, first of all, we had to figure out what the problem was and then hire towards that. You know, what problem are we trying to solve? And then from that, that's how you kind of build out that job description. And then you find people who fit that, that role. And so that was our process. We got a lot smarter about how we hire and, uh, and being patient. We really, and we're still learning, but being patient during the hiring process. And we've hired some amazing talent over the last, really over the last two or three years. I mean, first of all, I've been blessed with an amazing CFO, Mary, who came through David Dotson. She is arguably the most experienced person in the organization. And so to be able to have a colleague, my CFO, who is also a mentor and have that level of trust 
and she can easily put on her hat and, and represent a board and she's on many boards and it's just to have that day-to-day ability to 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 work with somebody like that just elevates us and elevates me as a, as a ceo we also recognize that we can't do anything without a strong supply chain. We are at scale are essentially a logistics company. So we have to be really good to get product from A to B, from vendors to our customers. And so that's not only about systems, but that's hiring that, that key leadership around that. So we did a search and recruited, I, took, I think it took us close to a year and found a director of manufacturing and production that kind of leads all aspects of that, plus procurement and supply chain. And he's John, John, he's from Kenya. He came to us from Nestle, where I think he worked, I'm not sure how long he worked, I think close to a decade. Anyways, he built close to seven or eight factories for Nestle across Africa, across six or seven countries. So just an amazing talent, just knows this game inside and out, food production, supply chains, getting stuff throughout Africa is not easy, moving things, moving product. And we have just improved leaps and bounds because I go to him and I say, what should we do here in your experience? You know, what, what, how should I, you know, how should I make this decision? You know, that sounding board of trust, again, me not directing him and oftentimes him coming with an idea and us working through it together. But having that, that, those partners in the room, everybody sits at the same table, same size seat, same size table. That's the big shift that, that Sanku's had compared my organization compared to say maybe five years ago, whereas, you know, uh, me telling people what to do and me not always sure what we should do. And so we've definitely elevated and evolved from that phase. Yeah, a one-year recruiting period to to find that right person is a that's a really long time to wait for a, a crucial role. How did you maintain patience through that that one-year period to find the right person? Six months of that was really hands-on recruiting and interviewing. I think six months up to that was more about figuring out you know, what the problem is and defining what we needed and identifying the gaps. So I, I kind of combined that as a one-year process to really get the, the person that we finally needed. And it, I mean, patience, uh, I'm not a very patient person. I have to be patient, but I, you know, it's frustrating to care so much about the work and then have to wait for the solution. And, and you have to, you cannot hire. And I've learned this the hard way. I've made a lot of bad hires because I hired fast or I felt, you know, I have this feeling about this person and it wasn't analytical. It wasn't data driven and you have to be patient and you have to have scorecards and it has to be a collaborative process. I cannot just hire somebody. It needs to be hired by my CFO as well, Mary. And now John, like we have a panel of people that interview the same person, even though it's not for example, if I hire a fundraiser, a chief or a director in fundraising, I'm not going to be the only one hiring that person. I'll even have John from supply chain or from manufacturing production, you know, interview that person as well. Cause you need multiple perspectives. And this person ultimately is going to be working with everybody at that executive level. And I often ask them, you know, is this a person that you're going to want to go out and have a cup of coffee with or a beer with or, you know, hang out on the weekend? That's important. It's not all about the work, you know, and, 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 and those experiences is where you build that trust as well. I love working with the people I work with because I also love to go hang out with them as well. I mean, I think that's, that's an important fact for culture, for building culture and organization. You need to have things that go on both sides of the line of work, play hard, work hard, all that. Yeah. I like that interviewing style right out of Dodson's book that just came out with having a, a panel of, of interviewers. If you think of like your own 
like gut feeling that you had about someone like how often is that like what's the error rate today if you compare if you had like parallel process of hiring someone or choosing someone based on gut feel versus what the rest of your team thinks it's it's hard to say the fail rate but i definitely don't lean on the gut anymore um and so moving forward you know over the last couple of years that hasn't been the case but in the beginning it was just it was impatience. We had a problem. Let me just hire somebody. Oh, he, you know, he or she feels good for the role and then throw them in it. And it was just, it was just literally putting fingers in the leaky holes in the dam, but not really sitting back and saying, how can we build a better dam? And so, yeah, it didn't often work out. It didn't work out or they, or those people just remained at a lower level because we, we, we hired somebody to fix a problem for today, but couldn't grow and fix problems that you might have in five years. So again, it's not a good tactic for hiring. You want multiple, multiple eyes and ears on that person. And we have that now. We've definitely got a lot better. So the caliber of people that we're hiring and being more patient during the process, it just gives us a better, a better hire in the end. I like that analogy of you know, plugging holes in the dam versus building a better dam. It sounds like patience in hiring and waiting for the right person is part of building the better dam, but what else has gone into that in terms of your hiring process to make sure you're building the best dam you can? I think a scorecard that's aligned not only to that specific role that they're trying to fill. So it could be, you know, whether they're hiring for somebody for supply chain. So there's there's a lot of scorecard questions that might be geared towards supply chain. But you also have to have those higher level organizational mission driven scorecard questions and culture questions as well. You could have an amazing person that could check a lot of boxes for, you know, procurement, for example, but be a cultural misfit. And it's never going to work. They could be a genius, but it's never going to work because other people don't jive with them. So it's, it's a challenge because often, you know, we've come across people that technically on paper, they're great, but we're thinking, how are they going to mesh with our current team? Are they going to add to it? Are they going to be a detractor? And that's, that's a hard one because you don't really know somebody until you start working with them. And I guess that's why you do have six month probation periods, which we do, but then, okay, if it doesn't work after six months, you got to start the whole process again. So you don't want to, you want to, you want to be pretty sure when you hire somebody that, you know, the, the probation period is just kind of a, what if, but not like, a, well, we don't know until the six month. But again, hiring that person, not really knowing until you work with them, it's, 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 there's always going to be a level of risk. And so the better you are with, with your systems around hiring, again, with the scorecards, more people on it and take your time, you just limit the amount of chances that you're going to go wrong. The concept of risk is kind of interesting. Where do you feel like you're willing to take on risk versus going to hedge my bet as much as possible and avoid this risk as much as I can? I think naturally the, the more senior the position, obviously the stronger the due diligence and the less risk you're willing to give. You want to make sure you've got that and made that decision right. And so definitely if you're hiring a director of something, it's very different if you're hire, hiring a, you know, a warehouse coordinator. And just because for obvious reasons, there's, there's more responsibility at the executive level. And so you don't want that person to, to mess up. And so, yeah, for, as we enter this next stage, we're going to be hiring more executive level people and more senior managers. So it is a big focus this coming year is to get those right people in those positions. And we'll take our time 
not too long, but you know, we will take our time. And using recruiters are, are, are important. Recruiters are that first kind of line of defense and due diligence. But ultimately, you're going to have to make a decision on, do you have the right person? And you want to make sure that you're not the only one making that decision. You've talked earlier about relying on your board and mentors and peers for advice and being willing to ask questions quickly and not holding things back as much. How do you lean on your different groups of peers, your board, friends of yours? How do you, how do you seek advice from folks you trust? Increase the frequency of communication, number one. So whether it's with my co-founder, David, who's also the chairman of our board, putting in a recurring call once or twice, twice a month. It's not a board meeting. It's not even necessarily me talking to my chairman. It's sometimes me taking off my CEO hat and taking off his chairman hat and us, you know, being humans and talking through a, a, an issue that I'm facing. And it's challenging sometimes because he is a board member. He's a co-founder and so very much ingrained in those roles, but he's also a friend and a mentor. So, you know, we have a good balance where we're able to navigate some of those issues, but my openness to trusting him and, and, and likewise gets us to solving a problem a lot faster. It's the same case with my CFO, Mary, you know, she, I can take off my CEO hat and she can take off her CFO hat and then we can talk through a problem. I, I don't want to use the term equals because we're, of course we're equal, but putting titles aside and saying, you know, what, what, what are we trying to solve? What do we need to do and who needs to do it to get there? And throwing kind of rank out the window. And then also I'm in a world of other social entrepreneurs. You know, there's other people that are struggling to achieve a big mission and totally are committed and believe it's their last job. Just like I believe this is my last job. I can't see myself doing anything else. And so even though sometimes it feels like a lonely job, it's, it's, there's other people going through the same thing. And so I do have a network of friends who are CEOs and founders of other social enterprises working in maybe similar geographic areas or in similar sectors or share similar donors or we meet at conferences. And that's always a great learning experience. I go to them and try to figure out what, where have them, where have they been failing and how did they get out of that hole? or share, share an issue with them that I'm struggling with, or I have got this issue with the board or, or with an employee, or am I, you know, am I wrong in thinking that? Did I react the wrong way? And there's a trust there as well. And they're like, wow, that sounds like what I did last month. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I did this, this or that, or this guy, you know, Jeremy from HR or whatever. And it's, it's a safe place and it can, it can be spoken over a coffee or a beer, but it's a learning space as well. And we all, I would, I, not to put words in their mouth, but I think we'd all define ourselves still as, as students, as social entrepreneurs, because there's no blueprint. And because there's no blueprint, none of us can say we've got this. None of us can be overly confident. We can be confident that we believe in the mission, but none of us have gotten there yet. I don't know a, a social entrepreneur other than one of our board members who has achieved their mission yet. And even when you achieve your mission, well, then you add another hundred million people to your mission and it never stops. And so in that, in that sense, you're always a student and you've never figured out and you're always getting better, but that's what drives you to get that mission. I love that. What, what's a strongly held belief that you've switched your mind on? Me and as an organization, you know, we've never been a big fan of dependency on, 
on behavioral change. Behavioral change is, is a term quite frequently used in, in this sector or, or, or demand creation or be, be, you know, community sensitization. There, there's a bunch of words for it, but we wanted to build a product and a company and a business model that, that its success wasn't contingent on behavioral change or convincing hundreds of millions of mothers to buy this product or government to enforce it. And to a certain degree, we've been successful at that. You know, again, we, we create a product where the taste doesn't change. It's just better. It's more nutritious. The cost doesn't change because we've neutralized that. But more and more realize how easy our job would be if we had more demand and more behaviors were changed and people wanted and were bought in as much as we are. And so if I was steadfast early in my career that we'd build a business model that wasn't contingent on the success of behavioral change. Whereas now I think it's going to be something that we're going to be looking at more and more. And I'm happy that we can pivot like that as well and be very sure about something. And then after a while say, you know what, let's try it out. Let's tweak it. Let's be malleable in our path. So I'm proud of the team for, for pushing me on that. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bend as well. So what, what changes have to happen for you to lean more into behavioral change as a mechanism for achieving your mission? I think it's a structure and the duty of our field staff. So our field staff, we have 20 to 30 out there with vehicles. They're driving around. They're on the front lines of fortification, literally working in the communities, working with millers, our customers, engaging with local government and customers or mothers. And to, to this point, mostly it's been about installing machines, fixing machines, delivering product, walking away. And that's not good enough. We need, and I don't want to use the word sales, but we need to incentivize inspire these millers to feel that they're health heroes in their community so that they're mo- more bought in meaning and the result of that the outcome of that would be they're, they're going to be more of a compliant miller they're going to make sure that their machines when they're not breaking they're going to call us faster they're going to make sure that they're going to add the nutrients and not let the machines run out of the powdered nutrients they're going to talk to their consumers their customers their mothers who are buying this product and tell them how great this product is in improving the health and and, and livelihoods of their, of their community. And so, you know, by pushing that messaging, it's going to naturally create more demand. And we can do that at the Miller level at our customer and our indirect beneficiaries, which are the mothers through the government as well. So getting the government more bought in with their, say their, their district level nutritionists and their health inspectors who engage with consumers and mothers, getting them more aware around why people should be consuming fortified flour, how it makes your life better, makes you healthier, makes you fight disease and really builds and develops a whole nation. So that's something it's, it's a, we've been scared to do it because it's such a big task. It's very costly. And I'm not saying we're going to own it, but we are going to start working with more partners who have that as their special sauce. It's something they do well and aligning our mission and our, our objectives with theirs. I think it's going to be a collaborative effort to kind of check that box on demand creation and and behavioral change ultimately. That's an exciting transition and think something to watch over the next couple of years. What's the best business you've come across? Well, I really feel like I've only ever worked for this one and it's not the best business I've ever come across. It's getting there. So I have to definitely give a shout out to one of our board members. Ned Tozen is the founder, co-founder rather, and previous CEO of D-Lite. And I think it's an amazing organization because it's come essentially from where we came from and where we want to go. It, it was birthed 
from the same class that I mentioned earlier from Stanford University for the design for extreme affordability class. It's a solar company, you know, essentially start off with small solar lamps, but putting these lamps into communities. So communities that are off grid. So, you know, boys and girls can read at night for school and, and, and just uplifting communities through solar technology. And their goal was to reach 100 million people. And they achieved that in 2020, I think it was. And that's our mission as well, to reach 100 million people. And so to have somebody on your board that has built a company from scratch, from a product, from students, essentially working in the same region, East Africa, that we work in, had the exact same mission of bringing a product they built and engineered to these communities, these at-risk communities that add value to them to 100 million people. It's exactly kind of the path that we're on and will be on until we reach 100 million people. And I think now they're reaching 150 million people, so scaling super fast. He's a brilliant man, social entrepreneur, and cares about it. And that culture, I visit his office, is, is immersed in, in everything they do at the day-to-day level at their company. And so I aspire Sanku to follow in those footsteps and hopefully reach 100 million people by 2030. It's an amazing company, D.Light, D.Light, check it out. That's a great business and a really big mission too and exciting and hopefully Sanku will get there here pretty soon. But Felix, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about the mission and your journey as CEO and as a person and now with a family too. It's very exciting. So thank you for sharing your time. Really good to chat with you. Alex, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood and Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. 